One, two, three, go. Hello, and welcome to IS Off the Page. I'm your host, Morgan Kaplan, and I'm the executive editor of International Security, a quarterly journal edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by MIT Press. Off the Page seeks to bring together policymakers, academics, and practitioners into conversation about security issues of global importance. In each episode, we will discuss a recent piece of research published in International Security, and more importantly, go beyond each article's findings to engage in the policy implications of rigorous research. In this sense, we'll be going off the page and directly into the heart of contemporary policy discussions. To help us do so, we'll have at least two guests on each show, the author and someone from the broader policy community. On today's inaugural episode, we will be talking about Henry Farrell and Abraham Newman's summer 2019 international security article titled Weaponized Interdependence, How Global Economic Networks Shape State Coercion. In their article, Farrell and Newman explain how states are increasingly able to weaponize their centralized positions within global informational and financial networks for strategic purposes. For today's discussion, we have one of the authors, Abe Newman, with us, as well as Elizabeth Rosenberg, who is a senior fellow and director of Energy, Economics, and Security at the Center for a New American Security. Abraham Newman is a professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service in the Department of Government at Georgetown University. He is also the director of the Mortara Center for International Studies and chair of the European Union Studies Association. Well, thank you for joining us, Abe Newman. Thanks for having me, Morgan. Of course. So today we are talking about your most recent article uh, published in International Security with Henry Farrell, Weaponized Interdependence, How Global Economic Networks Shape State Coercion. Tell us a little bit about uh, this interesting project. There's a large literature, a lot of people have thought about what's the relationship between conflict and economic interaction goes back to Hamilton. You know, so that's sure. not a new kind of- Wait, the musical? <laughs> exactly. And actually, Henry and I are putting together- No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> um, uh, but what we're focusing on weaponized interdependence is how the private networks of globalization, how those private networks- are being leveraged by states for coercive ends. And so if you think, you know, it used to be what states did is they 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 would create embargoes, for example. They'd say, you know, nobody nobody gets to sell to this country or we're not going to let people from that country sell to our market. And so they would use their, you know, their economic power to limit access to a country or to themselves. But what now is happening is that powerful states are limiting access to the global network. And that's really what weaponized interdependence is. It's about control over access to these global networks. Right. So when you're talking about central nodes, like help us think about it. You know, what is these key nodes in the networks? What does this network look like? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, there's multiple networks. It's not just kind of one, uh, you know, Godzilla network. Uh, but in each kind of component of globalization, if it's uh, the internet. So if you're going to hold a website, it's very likely that your website runs through Amazon Web Services. And so even though the internet seems so decentralized and fragmented, all of the data is being routed through just a few core companies 
that hold the kind of the key to providing that service. Uh, the same thing happens in finance. You know, you think, oh, global finance, it's the most decentralized, non-state oriented, fragmented kind of uh, set of networks. But in fact, most ec- global economic transactions are routed through U.S. dollar clearing. And so those are few U.S. banks that are responsible for that, and they hold the kind of the key to those nodes. Similarly, um, there's this thing called the SWIFT system. It's basically a way for banks to make secure financial transactions. Well, it's one organization that sits in Belgium, and regardless of what bank you are, it's you know you're basically sending all of your very sensitive data through SWIFT. Is this conventional wisdom that globalization leads to these kind of asymmetrical networks where some countries or some places have all the ties with everything leading through it and other places don't? Um, or, or is this actually contrary to the conventional wisdom? Yeah. So I think the standard story is, uh, first, that globalization has fragmented power. And so if you think about Thomas Friedman or Amory Slaughter or even, you know, Kohane and Nye, there's a whole, you know, uh, le- lineage of people who've argued that more actors have power. Uh, and the second point is that coercion becomes less beneficial. And so the idea in all those studies has been that, you know, economic interdependence creates mutual dependence. So that people don't want to leverage these asymmetries because they would hurt themselves to hurt somebody else. Right. And what we're kind of, we're flipping both of those. We're saying first, you know, it's actually not always decentering and fragmenting, that it can actually help the the core powers. But also we're saying um, that there are asymmetric interdependencies and that those can, you know, differentially hurt different people in the system. Tell me a little bit about how it actually happens, right? How do states weaponize interdependence, like in a play-by-play, right? Because I think what's fascinating about this story is we have a number of different actors. We have the state where the kind of keynote is. We have a lot of private sector actors who in some ways um, have to either do the bidding of the state or, or they're being acted upon uh, by the state. But then there's also the target out there that's being kind of having the, the the weapon turned on them, so to speak. You know, could you tell us a little bit more about what it looks like in reality, you know, maybe going through one of your cases? Just in the kind of the nuts and bolts, you have, we call them privileged states. Those are the states that can use these tools and you have the ultimate target. So in the case of, let's say, Iran sanctions, it's, you know, the US and Iran. Those are the privileged state and the target. But really all the work is happening through the global private networks, the private actors, the companies. And in that case, it's happening through global financial networks. And really, the the, the true target of the weaponized interdependence in that case, it's not Iran specifically, but it's the German banks that might mm. clear the oil transactions for the Iranian uh, government and their banks. And so it's by clamping down on those German banks saying, you know, we're not going to give you access to SWIFT, or we're not going to give you access to US dollar clearing, then those banks, and particularly their compliance departments, you know, they start to say, look, Iran's a small potatoes compared to the United States. We need access to the US dollar clearing system. We need access to SWIFT. And so, you know, we're going to follow the, the, the laws and sanctions of the US, uh, because if we don't, you know, we risk this uh, global private actor network. And that's something that I think's 
really interesting about the argument itself because although we're thinking about weaponized interdependence as how you know state A can weaponize its uh, its privileged space in the economy against uh, a target to either choke off um, that target's access to certain resources or to economics. It looks like a lot of the politics and a lot of the coercion is actually happening um, amongst the state and its allies or amongst those that it, it actually does a lot of business with. It seems that a lot of the tension and a lot of the interesting politics is actually happening uh, outside the context of the target itself. Definitely. And it's not just with the allies, but it's with their uh, private sector businesses. Right. And, and it's not even you know always about an ally. So in the current conflict with China... You know, a lot of the U.S. pressure is directed at U.S. companies like Google or Qualcomm and saying, you know, we do not want you engaged in Chinese supply chains. Well, the target is at yourself, but it's through these. It's not directly at China. It's through these private networks that the, the you know, what Henry and I are now calling kind of the quiet war is hmm. happening. So how does a state get these private companies to comply or do they not comply you know um you know i I know you write in the article about institutions the the importance of institutions and norms in the home state for example that gives the ability of the state to actually get private sector um, components to comply but but how does that work how does that happen what conditions need to exist for a state to effectively uh, convince private sector, sector actors to, to come on board. When we talk about weaponized interdependence and the character of the network and how it opens up these strategic opportunities for states, that's, that's basically a structural condition. It's, you know, do the states have access to this type of toolkit? But then the question of whether they can actually activate it. Well, not every state, even if they have access to like a hub, do they have hmm. the institutions and norms that allow them to do it? And so if you take the United States um, in the area of finance, one of the things that's so powerful for the United States is OFAC, which is a part of Treasury that is, you know, has huge institutional capability to identify economic hubs and then also to enforce sanctions on companies. And so that kind of institutional capacity is something that really helps the United States do this. Um, just a counterexample, in the European Union, they also have key economic hubs in their markets. Up until Brexit, uh, they have (laughs) London. uh, They have it for a few more months. But they don't really have this similar kind of uh, institutional bureaucracy that allows them to activate those sanctions against these uh, global economic networks. So is the idea that these institutions are good at identifying who is actually needed uh, to be part of a, you know, kind of organized process of closing down, um, you know, economic ties to another state or, or, or maybe some sort of, um, you know, sanctioning of goods is that you're saying like, it's almost hard for a state to understand who actually it needs to, to comply. Exactly. So in any, uh, global economic network, it's difficult to identify who these linchpin actors are. Um, I'll give you an example. Recently, the U S government went after, a Russian company, Rusal, and people often think of commodities are kind of substitutable. You know, who cares? It's aluminum. Well, you know, we can just shut down Rusal, and then people will switch over to some other aluminum producer. But there's a very specific high-grade type of aluminum that Rusal makes, and those sanctions did not just affect the general aluminum market, but that high-grade aluminum 
market as well. And that basically was going to crush the European auto market. And so it's, you know, the institutional capacity to know about where do I need to target these actions in order to really get to a hub, but also I need to make sure that there's no unanticipated consequences that might really make this, you know, not beneficial to me ultimately in the end. Well, on that note, Abe, I got to ask you a very important question. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Do you know what you're ready for? I don't. To go off the page. (laughs) Nice. And now to join Abe and I, we have Elizabeth Rosenberg, who is a senior fellow and director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for a New American Security in Washington, D.C. Prior to joining CNAS, Elizabeth was also working at the United States Department of the Treasury from 2009 to 2013, where she worked on issues including terrorist financing, financial crimes, and sanctions. Liz, thank you so much for joining our show today. What is your, you know, what are your kind of general impressions from the policy side, from the policy perspective um, of where we are in terms of weaponized interdependence in 2019? Well, I I really like this paper. Um, uh, so congratulations uh, on on the article to uh, to Abe and Henry. I think this really captures uh, what is a contemporary state of play in the world of international politics, and I think that. Uh, from the policy uh, practitioner standpoint, we're actually just at the beginning of what is going to be a much more developed and nuanced um, trading of barbs by different nodes in the networks in the future. I think it's interesting and, and really begets a rich analytical conversation to talk about Nodes that may be smaller, but they may nevertheless have hmm. important influence in in this network, a shaping influence. So, for example, when they're talking yeah, who about, are they? So, um, by the way, Abe, I want to hear what you think too. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. I'm in the background. I'm lurking. I'm ready Abe to is strike. Here, everybody. Hi, Abe. Um, so, uh, when thinking about um, SWIFT and SWIFT cutoff, um, the, the, their article discusses the significance of the United States in influencing SWIFT to uh, remove Iranian banks from its system, but they rightly point out that the EU um, and the Belgian national authorities were the ones who directed SWIFT in the end to do so. So, um, of course, uh, the EU has its own, it is another important node. And it's my view that because the United States and the EU uh, worked together at that time in 2012 and cutting off the um, a number of designated Iranian banks from the SWIFT system, it had both the uh, perceived and actual uh, powerful effect of enabling the United States to do it unilaterally more recently when that happened, um, when the U.S. reimposed sanctions after pulling out of the JCPOA last year. So uh, I I think uh, there are other nodes here, some of which may be more important than others, but it really 
it's uh, it makes this interesting article even more controversial than it might seem to suggest that um, some of these nodes, even if they're marginal, may have some um, uh, important power to wield or to shape, uh, which may undercut the notion that there are you know uh, states that are just weak or that have you know the tools of the weak. I think I'd like to this this article may challenge that idea, even if it's a jurisdiction which has really small nodes, they may nevertheless be able to um, wield their leverage from their node in important ways to influence bigger. Um, the actions of states with bigger nodes, including the United States. Liz, can I ask you to talk a little bit about um, the like the institutional capacity that's necessary to do this kind of stuff, and also the the propensity for for miscalculation or unanticipated consequences. And so, what I'm thinking about is just riffing off of what you just said. Um, you know, you really have to understand the economic network that's underlying these relationships in order to leverage some kind of coercive pressure. And I think there have been a, a series of, of different examples where actors did things and maybe they didn't fully understand the market structure behind it. And then it had, so I'm, what I'm thinking in the back of my head is there were the US sanctions against Rusal and the kind of spillover that that had for car manufacturing in Europe and how it kind of was like, oh, wow, we thought the aluminum market was very flat, but actually it has these centralized nodes. Or another example was um, Germany in response to the Khashoggi murder, they passed a law preventing uh, German uh, components to be used in arms sales. And then all of a sudden, everybody realized that like German machine tools are Euro- used across the European arms production System And so the German law wasn't just stopping German exports, but it basically prevented all Europeans from exporting to Saudi Arabia. So I guess it's just this kind of like, how many countries have the institutional expertise to know where the, the pressure points are, and then also to kind of understand what might be the like unanticipated consequences of using them? Right. It's a really good question. Um, so in order to... Um, leverage uh, the, the the power, a government, a state uh, has to have people in its bureaucracy that have really excellent knowledge of the market structure and supply chains and the connectivity uh, on a whole bunch of levels. So certainly that includes like um, uh, parts, technology, um, intermediate and finished manufacturing uh, processes. Um, uh, it can sometimes mean, uh, it, it definitely means having a really detailed knowledge of major global companies and what uh, legal jurisdictions they sit in and that they're subject to. Um, and so your aluminum, Roussel, an aluminum example is a good one. Certainly, um, excellent knowledge of market structure, corporate structures, uh, legal, uh, applicable um, legal and regulatory frameworks. Another thing that is necessary in this institutional capacity is actually a pretty well-developed um, legal and regulatory system uh, as the modality for uh, for exercising this leverage in the the state where these nodes exist, um, and that 
and I mean that like in the first instance, like uh, being able to sufficiently uh, research and develop the evidentiary package for making a sanctions designation, for example, or the parallel process for putting an entity on the commerce entities list, um, which is um, something that the U.S. has done with uh, Huawei referenced in your article. Um, and, there, and there are other examples of, of uh, other legal authorities that would certainly apply to the information or IT space and, and others. And along with that, exercise in the first instance is certainly also licensing or uh, on the back end to, if you will, uh, course correct or um, unwind some of those unintended consequences. And that's something that the United States has been able to do with the issuance of uh, general and specific licenses um, and uh, uh, and other licenses, as in going back to that Huawei case, where you uh, you create certain forms of permission so that the blanket choke point effect is not quite as severe, um, and it will help to ease some of the business disruption or the information flow disruption, so that you can, if you will, better calibrate how disruptive this uh, action is. You know, how do businesses bite back? You know, we're talking a little bit about how states, you know, are using their institutions to actually, you know, weaponize these systems. But I mean, a lot of this involves private sector companies actually complying. When When do companies bite back? When do they want to fight back and say, you know what? I know that the government wants to engage in some form of, you know, economic coercion internationally, but this is bad for business and you can't tell us what to do, or maybe they can. So like, how is, how's the kind of private sector looking at all of this? So, so, you know, my, um, my intuition that a, a really important part of the puzzle for the private sector is the legitimacy of the target and the cost to its brand of resisting. And so, hmm. You know, in the article, we talk a lot about the post 9-11 period, and there, a lot of IT firms, they, they saw very few options in the wake of the attacks to really resist collaboration with uh, the U.S. government. But, you know, now you see IT firms, as, as the kind of the, the threat environment has waned, a lot more willingness by IT firms to push back. So, uh, Microsoft has this whole agenda, they call it um, the Digital Geneva Convention, where it's basically they're trying to get IT firms to cooperate together to say that they're not going to collaborate in kind of cyber operations with the government. Um, and I think the big question right now is how China and its position in these debates is changing. I think that the legitimacy of targeting China by the US government has really transformed in the last three years, where firms used to see um, economic cooperation with China as a, just a win-win for them. But now the legitimacy of the government targeting China seems to be um, increasing. So for me, it's it's that I think plays a big role. Right. I, I wanted to add to that the the environment here from a commercial standpoint with China influences that um, changing political willingness to embrace really tough policies on China, tough economic policies on China. So um, it's not as though 
there haven't been serious concerns by U.S. and other international business firms related to Chinese IP theft, uh, forced tech transfer, unequal joint ventures, a lack of reciprocity on investment, um, the distortions or unfair advantages from um, Chinese state-owned companies by comparison to other international companies. So, you know, those concerns have been there for a long time, but China's has been the its its economy has of course not held steady. It's been growing massively. So the nature of the competition and the fact that China, because of some of these um, unfair uh, trade uh, or um, uh, commercial espionage uh, uh, activities, um, they're now uh, flooding the market, pushing other companies out. So it's the the political the growing political appetite to embrace the um, the use of uh, tough measures, your choke point measures, uh, with regard to China, it is increasing. Um, it's not just a, a you. I agree. It's both popular and from a public policy perspective, and it's been a really rapid um, increase. Uh, the companies, of course, have uh, different perspectives on this because um, they they are exposed on all sides. Uh, some of them, global companies, are exposed on all sides. They they feel more and more and more um, uh, unhappy and challenged commercially by those unfair trade practices. But uh, China is this massive growing economy and a growth strategy for an international business involves trying to figure out how to navigate in both places. So, um, So pushing back is really tricky. And so I think you're seeing a whole a whole array of responses, some of which are like, uh, but m- many of which fall into the like, do your best. Be best. Goodness. <laughs> um, uh, I wasn't going quite there, but the um, <laughs> do the best in the environment that you, that you now find yourself in, even if it means um, uh, having uh, accepting greater inefficiencies or redundancies in order to right. create insurance insurance for your for your business. On the face of it, it's a really important question to say. Well, you know, like aren't companies which are made to be the the foot soldiers of you know of states using these policies? They are the the long arm extension of state power here. How do they feel about it? Don't they? Don't they? object and say things like, hey, if we're not state institutions, we have we're commercial actors. Don't don't involve us in your, you know, big power politics. Well, one thing we should immediately you know step back and ask ourselves is, well, do those companies have shareholders? And where do those shareholders live? And uh, because I think what you quickly come to, uh, in addition to like where what legal jurisdiction they're in and whether they have to just, you know, if they're U.S. companies and they have a lot of exposure to the U.S. market, they just have to hold their nose and comply. And if they put up a stink about it, um, even if that there's lots of legitimacy to that, they um, they have to deal with the fact that they they it may not do well for their brand and their shareholders might not like it. And, uh, and their shareholders may furthermore be bound by legal obligations, um, U S legal or other legal obligations that have a bearing on, on what kind of reaction the company chooses to take. So this is one of the reasons we see that even when countries disagree, say the United States and some of its European counterparts in the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, and those Europeans and the other parties to the agreement don't like it when the U.S. left the JCPOA, 
they're not the ones who ultimately decide whether European and other companies comply with U.S. sanctions. You know, those, you know, in those democracies and in those relatively free market economies, the companies make their own decisions about who they're doing business with. And they look, they take one look at, you know, this new political reality and these new sanctions. And they say, are you kidding me? I, of course, I'm going to follow the U.S. law. I, I don't want to be branded as, um, you know, like the, the, the company that tried to stand up to the United States and got on the wrong side of their policy. And even if there's, you know, a legal avenue to do it and some, some small amount of money to be made, it's a, it's a huge burden to take on um, to, to, that might seriously diminish our brand and our shareholders may have strong views and we don't want to wade into that. Liz, can I, I want to connect that conversation you just had with um, another set of themes about using these tools in a diplomatic way. Okay, so bear with me for a second. So I am totally on board that the power of these coercive strategies is largely through reputation, because ultimately the sanctions, you know, OFAC sanctions against companies are relatively rare. The cases that they actually pursue and finance, they use them in a kind of a demonstration effect way, but companies aren't on the chopping block every day. And instead, you know, what they're really worried about is their compliance departments, this kind of reputational effect. Okay, so that's on the one hand. But what we're seeing increasingly under the Trump administration is that these tools are being used unilaterally with very little kind of pre-caucusing with allies or, you know, even amongst the business community. And so could you imagine a place where you get a tipping point the other way of non-compliance, where people say, you know, actually the United States is the rogue actor. They're the one that's just going out and making these demands. And why should we be cowed by these threats? If the, you know, the signals aren't credible, if they're changing policy every third day, if they don't have anybody on board with them, you know, what is really the likelihood that we're going to get sanctioned? Is it, wouldn't it be better if we just teamed up and just collectively non-complied? Right. What do you think about that scenario? Yeah, we're seeing that. um, We're we're seeing uh, other countries uh, uh, explore uh, that scenario, um, coping as uh, as a way to address their feelings of frustration and dismay and outrage that the United States has jettisoned their views and acted unilaterally. So. Coming back to the JCPOA, it's a great example, again, where these uh, European capitals have said, no, 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 that we absolutely disagree with the way you have, um, the United States has approached this. And um, we, uh, we're deeply dismayed by the fact that your new unilateral sanctions have these effects on our companies that we don't choose to uh, to to create, but they're n- nevertheless happening. And so they've done this work to create um, what is now referred to by acronym as the INSTEX, which is a um, non-bank uh, financial uh, mechanism to manage uh Exchange, financial exchange between Iran um, and at at first at the beginnings uh, Europe um, uh, to try and avoid 
U.S. jurisdiction and the dollar, et cetera, which is to say to try and make it sanctions proof. But um, what we've seen here, there's two really important takeaways that I want to point out. And one is, well, unhappily, they it looks like they're going to be, um, they're still uh, subject to U.S. Uh, jurisdiction. They still wind up having to care about this. And um, uh, if the United States, it seems unlikely that if these countries bandwagon together and decide to play, so say the right, the German, the French, and the British central banks get together and say, "I dare you to sanction us," and just think of what you'll do. Um, th- that's unrealistic because they're so heavily um, interdependent and with uh, intertwined with the U.S. financial system that they can't just. Um, they, they can't uh, push back on the U.S. Uh, on these policies because uh, their their economic livelihood and financial capabilities are so heavily invested in um, in staying connected to the United States. So they can't just decide to go it alone. And the second thing I wanted to just say is, I think that a behavioral economist um, would want to remind us that political officials even by being frustrated with the policy and deciding to build a coalition and build this non-bag financial mechanism cannot substitute for an actual economic impulse or you know the real behavioral economics here where in order to create a new network or a major new node that's that's more appropriate a major new node um, you need actual um, uh, you know, consumer preferences or economic actor preferences, uh, moving uh, users or units in this in this broad network to a new node, and political outrage and diplomacy just ain't enough. We're kind of going down a road and in, in 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 talking about the conversation of weaponized interdependence from like different perspectives, and we kind of started out from the perspective of the state that is actually uh, weaponizing interdependence. We've moved then to the private sector, the companies that essentially have to comply um, to be the weapon, more or less, um, in these types of networks. But I'm wondering if now we can talk a little bit more about the complete other side, right? What is it like to be a target um, against, you know, wep- you know, in this you know, system? What is it like to be on the weaker side of the asymmetry? How how do these states respond? You know, what are the you, you know you'd mentioned tools of the week, the weapons of the week. What are the weapons of the week? Um, if you are on the receiving end of this powerful node um, that is is trying to crush you, I've observed a whole array of different reactions. And um, back to what I was saying earlier about. If you've got a node in your jurisdiction, even if it's relatively marginal, maybe you're not weak, hmm. really. Maybe you're not, maybe these aren't the weapons of the weak. These may be, you know, smaller nodes exercising their leverage, but they may still be um, meaningful, even if they're lesser nodes and lesser amounts of leverage. And, um, uh, and and they can and, and we can really we can see all kinds of things here like denying visas or canceling a state trip or um, or a state meeting. So, um, but if that really you know like is a thorn in their side, maybe you're not so weak. You just have different kinds of 
um, different kinds of tools and you may be able to destroy less business. <laughs> um, but what are those various tools? I think it's really worthy to think about what the tools are of these different nodes. And there are many. Um, and uh, from, but I think they all move around the disruption or interruption or denial of access for the otherwise necessary or important uh, flow of goods, information, services, people. And so um, sometimes, uh, you know, we, we talked about insects, that's one kind of uh, reaction. But it's Europe in this case isn't even using their most powerful uh, tool. Like if, for example, those European central banks, instead of getting together and saying, we're going to try and create a um, a non-bank sanctions-proof clearing mechanism, uh, which for you know trade with Iran, which they haven't. I mean, they've 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 sort of sort of done it. They're getting towards it, but they're not going to embrace anything that's illegal under sanctions. So it'll just trade humanitarian goods. But what if they had come together and said, "We're going to refuse to clear euros for any U.S. financial institution"? That is an absolutely enormous. Or what if they had come together and the, the jurisdiction of Belgium had said, we are going to order SWIFT to limit its terms of service to U.S. financial institutions um, in, in some way for some period of time as a, as a disciplinary measure. Like Those are enormous nodes that Europe has not used. So I think it would be... Um, uh, it's totally taboo in Japan uh, with its formidable economy to talk about the exercise of this kind of economic coercion. But boy, do they have tools. Your examples bring up, which I think is really important, is how states can use nodes from one sector or subsector to defend against attacks from, you know, from when they're being put under pressure from another uh, sector hub. And so just two examples I, I thought may resonate is one is in the Huawei case, you know, the U.S. is actually the weak node. You know, here's an example where China is going to dominate 5G internet and the U.S. doesn't really have a strategy how to deal with that. And so they're worried that if they lose control over those key networks, that they'll be at a national security disadvantage. And so they use the dominance over things like the Android operating system or semiconductor chips and the supply chains in order to cripple Huawei. Or if you take another example from Japan and South Korea right now, where South Korea was trying to get back at Japan for World War II indignities and use their financial system to do it. And so then Japan strikes back with the uh, it, it bans the export of these particular chemicals that are needed for flat screen TVs, you know, and uses that choke point to get back at South Korea. And so you're seeing states think about this three-dimensional chessboard of how different networks and hubs can be used against each other. Absolutely. And I think it's going to, um, uh, I think it's just going to proliferate. And I like the way you describe that because it's really not just retribution, for like action reaction, I think it's going to be a really multi-dimensional um, strategy used by all kinds of countries um, to shape and influence uh, relationships. You know, there's the the folks in uh, who are talking about gray zone conflict or cross-domain competition. Uh, this really sings uh, to that community. 
what's the kind of trajectory going forward, right? Because if we see that, you know, this, it actually sounds like this could be quite escalatory in the sense of, you know, you may have a strong, you may be a keynote in one sector, but not in another. And so does this create a world where people are going to be weaponizing interdependence back and forth, and there's going to be this escalatory component of just a lot more um, kind of threatening and even, you know, course of actions taken against uh, each other. And this is kind of what the the global economic system is going to look like in the future. Or does this create a kind of like mutually assured destruction moment where it's like everybody knows they can hurt each other. And maybe we're in this learning moment right now, um, you know, of, of, hey, maybe this isn't exactly the kind of best way to go about uh, employing leverage. You know, what's what, what do you think the trajectory I is? I think both of those are true and that there's no political salience for restraint at all. So both of those are true, which is to say, you know, folks look around and say, what is what's the space between diplomacy, which maybe ain't getting us anywhere, and, um, and military action, which may be, uh, some of which may be, available without over well and you can manage the escalation but this entire realm of um legal and economic actions relating to uh, trade um banking and also information and data flow um those are all available uh options or steps in in a in the the new era of uh, shaping and signaling and interdependence, and I think the my own take on this is now is the right time to be revisiting our notion about um, escalation management and uh, and a ladder of what would get us towards mutually assured dis- destruction. There's that's going to look a lot different now, and maybe it has you know six different leading forms, but it's appropriate for um, analysts to be mapping out what that looks like so that analysts and public policy leaders have a better sense of when not to step in it. We're running out of time. And so, you know, I wanted to thank Liz very much for for joining us today and talking to us. And Liz, it is a, a, I should call it a new custom because we're a new podcast. Uh, But to end the show by asking guests, uh, what advice they would give to young academics, policy analysts, practitioners, um, you know, just based on your experience, what's the, what's the advice you'd give for success? For, oh, geez. For success. Well, it doesn't have to be success. It could be happiness. It could, it could be, it could be oh, happiness. No pressure here. Can I give you two items? All right. Yeah. Here's my, my first one is um, be brave in asking your so what questions. Don't ask a safe question that may be analytically interesting. Be really brave about it and put yourself out there. And my second one is always remember to wear sunscreen. (laughs) Because I met lots of folks who don't wear enough of it. Young folks, you're not immune. Just do it. It's safe. Just do it. That's it. It is safe. I like that. It's like on your in a personal life, like be safe, but also ask big questions. All right. Well, thank you, Liz. And thank you, Abe. Thanks. Thanks, Morgan.
Off the Page is a production of International Security, a quarterly journal edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. Our program is produced and edited by Morgan Kaplan, the executive editor of International Security. The associate producer is me, Rex Horner. Technical direction and post-production by Ben Craig. Thanks to our intern, Naomi Silverstein, for additional assistance. And special thanks to Halan Kaplan for composing our theme music. Upcoming episodes and additional material for Off the Page can be found online at belfercenter.org slash off the page. All articles from the journal can be read at mitpressjournals.org slash is.